Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Pacey Wettstein, and I am a pre-medical student and recent graduate from Stevenson University in Baltimore, Maryland, and proud to be a cardio nerds intern in House Jones, as in the Dr. Edith Irby Jones. Thanks for tuning into this very special episode as part of our Narratives in Cardiology series, where we have conversations to highlight inspiring faculty and trainees as part of our mission to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this episode, we have the great honor of learning from Dr. Brian Smith and Dr. Shirley Nervobi from the University of Chicago. We discuss both healthcare disparities and heart failure, as well as their personal narratives. At the end, Dr. Andy Shahu joins us to read his American Heart Association blog titled, Let's Ban the Phrase Social Issues, Social Justice, and Advanced Heart Failure Therapies. Make sure you pay attention to Dr. Shahu's important message, as well as the background music, which was composed and played by Dr. Brian Smith. On a more personal note, as a pre-medical student, I interned at the University of Maryland PICU with tremendous support from Dr. Adrian Holloway, who is also a black man in medicine. I got to know him as a phenomenal clinician, dedicated educator, and personal mentor. Hearing Dr. Smith's and Dr. Ubobi's personal narratives and experiences with implicit bias was truly eye-opening. I'm glad to have this new perspective and I feel privileged to help bring you this important discussion. Now, let's dive into another terrific narratives episode because our differences make us stronger. Hello, cardio nerds. Thanks for joining us for another incredible Narratives in Cardiology episode featuring two wonderful guests, Dr. Shirlene Abobi and Dr. Brian Smith. I have the privilege of introducing the talented clinician and activist and artist, Shirlene. She is a PGY3 currently internal medicine resident and rising cardiology fellow at University of Chicago. Shirlene completed her medical school training at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. She is passionate about narrative medicine, health equity, and health disparities, and espouses these passions via her medical comic platform, Shirley World MD. You guys have to check it out. It blew us away. It's like one of these rabbit holes. Once you start reading it, you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Anyways, Amin and I met Shirlene several months ago when we were looking for inspiration and advice about how we can do the narratives and cardiology series in the most effective way. And Shirlene immediately shared wonderful insights and sage advice more recently, we recorded an important patient story in the form of a case report, and she joined a growing group of talented cardio nerds ambassadors as part of our Healy Honor Roll program. Shirlene, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure, and I'm so excited to be part of the Cardio Nerds family. I'm not coming in single-handedly. I'm bringing in one of my mentors um, and favorite doctors, Dr. Brian Smith. Dr. Smith is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at University of Chicago. He completed his medical school training, residency, and cardiology fellowship at University of Chicago, then went across Lakeshore Drive to complete his advanced heart failure fellowship at Northwestern. At University of Chicago, he serves as the director of the hemodynamic cath lab on the Chicago Board for AHA and as faculty mentor for SNMA or the Student National Medical Association. Dr. Smith's interests lie in community-based interventions for heart failure management and racial disparities, and he is the face of several mentorship programs here in Chicago, including the Heart and Vascular Mentoring Program. On a personal level, I know that Dr. Smith has inspired an entire generation of Pritzker students. I personally attended some of his small group of sessions as a wee medical student, and his work and welcoming demeanor made cardiology feel more like a space I could see myself in. So thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for joining us today. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Shirlene. And it's so nice to meet you, Amit and Dan. It's an honor for me to be here. And honestly, Shirlene, it's an honor for me to be here with you in this podcast as one of our future all-star cardiology fellows. Your Shirley Work comic platform is incredible. And I'm so excited to see what you do for the world of cardiology and narrative medicine. But again, thanks so much for having me. You know, Dr. Smith, I couldn't more share in your enthusiasm for Shirlene. So excited for her to be joining us as part of the Cardinals family to represent the University of Chicago as an honorable ambassador. And Shirlene, I'm just so excited that we're finally doing this. I feel like we've been planning this forever, but it's finally here. So to Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us for this very special and important discussion about the inequities in the care we deliver to our patients. Everything we do begins and ends with a patient. Shirlene, you once told me 
about a patient whose story had a particularly strong and memorable impact on you, so much so that it inspired you to write a book. Would you share her story with us? Sure, Amit. So I feel like this patient is one that all of us who are in cardiology have probably seen before. She's a 17-year-old girl. She gave birth four months prior to her first presentation and was diagnosed with peripartum cardiomyopathy. Her past medical history before her diagnosis was only really notable for malintermittent asthma. She was otherwise a very normal teenager. She ran track. She liked school. And so for four months or so prior to her diagnosis, she'd started feeling unwell. She was experiencing significant dyspnea on exertion, so much so that she was unable to get to her classes. In that time, she presented with shortness of breath to multiple emergency rooms, where she was told that she was having asthma exacerbation, given steroids and nebulizer treatments, and sent home. Eventually, the patient went to a clinic appointment where she was found to be hypoxic to the 80s, hypotensive with a narrow pulse pressure, and otherwise quite sick. So it was transferred to University of Chicago for further management. That was when she was found to be in cardiogenic shock. Dr. Smith and for everyone, one thing that really struck me about her case was how long it took her to be diagnosed. And after looking into it, I found quite a few papers and one that got quite a bit of press and JAMA that specifically note the peripartium cardiomyopathy is often diagnosed later in Black women, and they tend to have worse clinical outcomes than non-Black patients. Yeah, you know, Charlene, thank you so much for sharing your patient's story with us. And unfortunately, I imagine that her story is not nearly as uncommon as we would hope. We're actually in the midst of a comprehensive cardio-obstetric series on the CardioNerds and discuss this very issue of racial disparities with Dr. Garima Sharma in the first episode to set the stage. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of pregnancy-associated mortality in the U.S., and sadly, non-Hispanic Black and American Indian and Alaska Native women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related cause compared to white women. Dr. Smith, how often do you see patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy, and what are some factors that you at least anecdotally think, maybe contributing to these disparities. Yeah, I see patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy, unfortunately, all the time. Being on the south side of Chicago and taking care of a lot of patients from the community, we see a lot of Black patients. And peripartum cardiomyopathy is very prevalent in Black population. Uh, about 40% of all cases of peripartum cardiomyopathy are found in Black women. And also we see incidents of more than four times in Black women than we see in white women. And we really have to kind of sit back and think why this reason is, you know. And although some studies have looked at genetic basis, I think the reasons are that some of the comorbidities that are associated with developing peripartum cardiomyopathy, we see more in Black women, meaning pregestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and poor prenatal care. We see a lot of these things in our young Black population. And so unfortunately, we do see it. And then in addition to that, like Shirley was mentioning, when these Black women present, they typically present later, they present sicker, they typically have a lower ejection fraction time of presentation as well. And more of them um, go on to requiring LVAD or transplant. So there really are significant disparities. And we're seeing these in young women as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for kind of going over that. With this particular patient, she was kind of one of the first patients I had really encountered who had this story. So it really struck me, and it's kind of sad that that's, it's, her story is not at all uncommon. But a little bit more about her. She eventually went on to getting a durable LVAT. And initially, she was compliant with her LVAT precautions. She did everything right. Well, not everything, but she did a lot of things right. <laughs> and was eventually able to have her native EF improved back to normal. And soon afterwards, her LVAD was decommissioned. Hooray. However, the road thereafter was quite rocky. She had multiple admissions. She missed a lot of her appointments and stopped being as compliant with her medications. She unfortunately also got pregnant again, and her heart failure worsened thereafter, and she had to have an LVAD reimplanted about a year later. I've talked to this patient, and it's actually very interesting because she's a teenager, and we've all been teenagers. And the thing about those times is that you kind of feel invincible, right? And I think that was the mindset that she went in with. It was one of kind of denial. She felt that once the VAD was out, she was normal again. She hadn't felt normal in a while, but... Because of her behaviors, she was labeled as unreliable and therefore a poor candidate for a heart transplant. 
Yeah. And this is a patient that I know very well as well. And I actually remember admitting her when she was first 17 years old when she was sick. And I remember admitting her again later on when she became pregnant and we need to discuss reimplanting a VAD. And it, it's true. As a teenager, you do feel invincible. And one thing I was going to mention is that dealing with a lot of young patients who have heart failure, it's uh, completely different than dealing with older patients. Younger patients truthfully feel like they're invincible. Imagine telling a 17-year-old that your heart is failing and you need a transplant. And, and they're like, I can't imagine that I would be that sick. So I think it took her a couple of years to really understand how sick she was. And in addition to that, I think it took her a while to trust our medical team. And she's grown tremendously in the past couple of years to the point now where she will call me at 2 a.m. if she's having bad alarms or if she has a question, she'll page or call every time she has questions. She's just really grown up so much in the past couple of years. But I think with young people, it just takes time to trust your providers and to understand how sick you are. Yeah, Dr. Smith and Charlene, I completely can envision this impossible situation. I definitely was a teenager and lived with that mantra of invincibility. Sometimes I look back and I'm just like, wow, I can't even believe I'm actually here today. And I'd like to say I've matured, but like I still can't even imagine having an, an LVAD implanted. I had to take, you know, um, clindamycin three times a day for like two weeks. And that was a struggle. Dr. Smith, you have this broad perspective of seeing patients over the years and this longitudinal care has definitely helped you grow in terms of a clinician, but also your empathy probably has grown over the years. And turning back to Charlene, you're a fledgling doctor, fledgling clinician, you're taking this all in for the first time, or maybe or maybe not the first time, but you're starting to get to know these situations. Do you know what this patient was going through and how she was processing it all? And how did you react to that? I mean, I think it was jarring, right? Because I think it's really easy when patients are in the hospital to think of them only as patients and to forget that they're people too, and that people are complex. They have complex emotions. They have reactions to things. Sometimes those reactions aren't necessarily what we would think are um, appropriate for their medical situation, but they're what make us human. And, you know, it was very funny talking to her because she, for example, described going to cardiac rehab to me. And, you know, rehab is one of those places where you send people, right? Like, at least for me, I've only ever toured a subacute rehab one time. You know, I've seen out people entering and exiting their outpatient physical therapy, but I've never actually had to do it. Thankfully, I was not that adventurous of a team myself. So, um, and she was describing going to cardiac rehab and being the youngest person there by far. And that one of the hardest things for her is having no one her age who can relate to her struggles. Um, no one who really is going through what she's going through. Once I made some statement about her, cause she's actually mentoring other VAT patients now. And I met, she's mentoring someone who's in their thirties. And I was like, Oh, you have someone else who's young. They're in their thirties. And she was like, Oh, please, that's old, <laughs> which of course is a dagger to my heart. <laughs> but, but still, right. And I, I mean, I think she's engaging in a medical system that she doesn't fully trust and she has reasons to historically not trust. And so, it's kind of interesting. When I talk to Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith has a clinic that's mostly full of these young Black patients with advanced heart failure, a lot like the patient we're discussing today. And one thing I, I've been asking him, and I would love for you to give some input on this, Dr. Smith, is how did you end up getting a, a clinic panel that looks like this? And why is it important that they have you in particular as their doctor, especially when we're discussing something like this yeah. advanced options? I always tell people, honestly, that, that I have sort of the dream clinic that I always wanted when I was younger. You know, you're younger, you sort of think about kind of patients you want to take care of. And somehow I, I do have it. It was intentional. I'll be honest. The reason I do love heart there is because a lot of times in cardiovascular medicine, it can skew to a kind of an older patient population. But heart failure is one of the subspecialties where you do end up seeing some younger patients because a lot of them have idiopathic cardiomyopathies or myocarditis or genetic cardiomyopathies. And so I, I just felt and part of the reason I went into heart failure in the first place is because I connected a lot with these young patients, a lot of young black men and black women who are terrified in the hospital. And as a resident or a fellow, I would go talk to them and really understand their fears and really understand where they're coming from. I think a lot of times these patients can be labeled as noncompliant or withdrawn or aggressive. But a lot of times you have to just understand where they're coming from. So I, I really found that by sitting down with many of them, talking to many of them, I was able to help get either get them better or a lot of them went on to VAD or transplant. And to be perfectly honest, I'm in touch with a lot of these patients who I met as a fellow that I still text every now and then, that I call every now and then, and I feel like they're a part of my life. So 
for me, that's what was really inspiration. And, and I'll be honest, I mean, our, our team, I think a lot of times will send all these young patients to me because I do try to relate to them in a way that's very sort of personal. You know, a lot of times people will say things like, oh, I sent this patient a letter and they didn't respond. It's just like you're saying when, you, when you're a teenager, you, you know, you, all the things you were doing, I'm like, when's the last time as a teenager I opened a letter and responded, you know? So I'm um, bad about my mail right exactly. now. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm definitely in that camp right now too. <laughs> so you have to meet patients where they are. So meaning you have to text them, meaning you have to um, interact with them on social media. You know, you have to, to connect with them in a way that they understand. And there's something so appealing uh, about that to me that uh, these patients who are so sick on the brink of death, we could just through sitting down with them and, and communicating with them, helping them get to transplant or, you know, leading normal lives again. Dr. Smith, the imagery that you're painting here is just this meeting the patient where they are, no matter where they need to be, and you're just there for them. And it's really taking things out of the clinic, really just being part of that patient's psychosocial support, even as their physician, as their clinician, and then, and I'm sure you are their advocate as well. Mm -hmm. Shirlene, I'd like to circle back to something very important that you mentioned, the notion of trust and how there are reasons for mistrust historically, especially among our patients of color. This is particularly timely now as we rally to get our patients vaccinated against COVID. Dr. Smith, what has your experience been surrounding trust and the advice that you have for us to help bridge that very key gap and forge a meaningful therapeutic alliance? It's a very challenging and very timely question. As you mentioned, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and vaccine hesitancy is just so prevalent in our community. I mean, we have some statistics where on our Southside community, only like 30% of Black patients are getting the vaccine. I mean, I think this sort of underscores this issue of trust that we're talking about. Black patients have a very long history of distrust in the healthcare system, stemming from instances like um, the Tuskegee Institute study of uh, untreated syphilis, where these Black sharecroppers from the 30s to the 70s who were infected with syphilis were withheld treatment. And, you know, there's an example of, of Henrietta Lacks, this Black woman who had ovarian cancer and her cancer cell lines were used for studies for years without any of her knowledge or any compensation. These are just two examples that I think many of our patients have um, other specific examples, you know. So I think this distrust goes back decades and is really ingrained in our patients. So what do we do about trying to break that distrust? I think there are a lot of things that we can do. I think just talking about it uh, and making sure that as healthcare providers, we understand where our patients are coming from listening to our patients. I, I think having clinics where, you know, we sit down with our patients and we sort of understand some of the social determinants of health and some of the reasons why they're in the situation they're in, I think makes a big difference as well. And, you know, I, I think also making sure that we partner with communities. I think a lot of academic institutions sometimes have some friction with the community where they're located. And so, you know, partnering with the community in, in various ways. We have our urban health initiative at University of Chicago, where we're invested and involved in the community as well. And, and also through mentorship as well. You know, I, I think you can break distrust when you have people from the community who end up working in the hospital or, you know, working in places where our, where our patients are. So I think, you know, through things like pipeline programs and, and making sure that you have people who live in, in the community work and are invested in the hospital. I think that makes a difference as well. Thank you so much for going over these really multi-pronged approach to develop this relationship and trust within our patient population. And I think it also just underscores the importance of professional diversity in, you know, within our fields, right? And it kind of takes me back to the discussion we had with Dr. Pam Douglas during our first narratives episode, where we asked her, you know, listen, like diversity obviously is an important virtue in and of itself, but does it improve patient care? And the answer is absolutely yes, because, you know, when patients are cared for by providers who look like them or share a background or a story, then, you know, they're more likely to be engaged in their care. The care is more likely to be patient-centered uh, and not just purely aesthetically guideline-driven. And also, you know, the patients are more likely to be adherent, follow-up is improved. And so for a variety of reasons, the issue of professional diversity ends up being so critical. Yeah. And, and so, you know, exactly what you're saying is, is so true that there are studies that show us that concordance of race between patient and provider improves trust, improves outcomes, improves quality of care. So I, th I think all the things you're, you're mentioning are, are so true. And, and I think that that's why it's so important to make sure that we have diversity at every level of training from medical school, even prior to medical school, all the way up through faculty level. We're talking about really, really global issues that we need to address from a systems level. 
what would you say to somebody in the clinic office or seeing somebody in the hospital as, you know, the, the individual clinician or the individual caretaker? Does it seem like it's an overwhelming task? You know, can I really change the way that the community relates to the hospital and the hospital relates to the community? What would you say to that? Is it something that I can do at a personal level? Or is this something that has to be only handled at the administrative level that can maybe make a larger impact? Definitely both, you know, as a short answer, but I think a personal level is so, so incredibly important. So, I mean, when you have a, a patient in, in your clinic and you're sitting down with them, I think it's really important to try to relate to them on some level because a lot of the distrust we see is because, you know, Black patients will say, you know, my provider didn't listen to me or dismissed me. There are studies in disparities of care where, where a Black patient don't get the uh, appropriate treatment where their pain is undertreated when, you know, in cardiovascular care, they don't get the ICDs. Um, so, you know, and yeah, there are examples where black patients are not referred for ICDs when they should be, when their pain has been undertreated and when they're not referred for cardiac catheterization and they should be. So I think, you know, some of these disparities are very, very real. And I think the way that we fix that is in the clinic room. I think every provider needs to sit down and really think about their own implicit bias and, you know, and understanding where our patients are coming from. I think we can, in a very, very sort of case-by-case basis, make a, a big difference in how patients end up sort of trusting healthcare system and, you know, trusting that their physicians are going to advocate for them. So I think it really does start on a very, very case-by-case basis. But yes, these are larger issues that I think, you know, institutions need to change as well. Yeah. And I think that most providers don't really consider that they may themselves have bias. It's really hard for us to do that as people who believe in evidence, who really think that we're following standards. But as you're saying, Dr. Smith, I mean, if you actually look at the data, right, there are these all these prominent studies that show that in, on multiple levels in cardiology for cardiovascular care, that we're not really advocating for Black people, women, people of color, any marginalized populations the way we should be. You know, I'm thinking of a study that was published in Jack by DePhilippus that specifically saw that women are less likely to be referred for VADs and to receive transplants. And then there was another that was in JAMA by Bret Hart et al., excuse me if I mispronounced the name, that actually looked through the discussions that were happening during transplant meetings and noted that the things that were brought up as potential barriers to transplant were different for different groups of people. And specifically, that social support and children came up a lot more as reasons to deny Black women transplants. And I think this doesn't surprise me much. I think it's a hard pill for us to swallow. And I I frequently, when I'm having discussions with people, they can sometimes have difficulty with saying, oh, well, but I, like, you know, me personally, I I treat all my patients the same. But I don't really have an article to necessarily back up this next part of it, which is that Honestly, it was almost, it's almost unconscionable to me that a patient like our patient, a teenager who has just received a devastating diagnosis and had to confront their death, that their very natural reaction to that would serve as a barrier to transplant for them one to two years later, you know? And I mean, at the risk of getting heavy, I always talk about how being Black in America means not getting the benefit of the doubt, right? And to me, this patient seems like a pretty classic example of that. And I can't help but to wonder if unconscious bias among providers is imposing this unreasonable scrutiny in patients of color. You know, Charlene, these disparities are as real as they are unfortunate. You know, sadly, they reflect a broader fractures in the fabric of our society. The management of heart failure is just one example, but, you know, our narratives fit advisor Dr. Zarina Sharalea and faculty council member Dr. Quinn Capers IV wrote a paper titled Racial Disparities in Cardiovascular Care, a Review of Culprits and Potential Solutions, in which they reviewed disparities in four areas. And Dr. Smith, you know, you already touched on this a bit earlier, but, you know, within AICD implantation for sudden cardiac death prevention, CRTD implantation for patients with a heart failure with Reduce ejection fraction and aberrancy, reperfusion for acute MI, and revascularization for critical limb ischemia. These should be no-brainer knee-jerk responses that are very clearly indicated, but yet the inequity in care is unacceptably wide. You know, the COVID pandemic era really further shed light on the racial inequalities at every level of our society. So, Dr. Smith, what do you think might be some potential ways to combat these disparities? Can you tell us about some of the initiatives you're working on now? Yeah, sure. So I think there are are many different ways to combat these disparities. 
So, you know, one thing that I think is important to mention, you know, sort of what Charlene was mentioning is as a heart failure physician, we have these multidisciplinary meetings where we discuss patients for transplant all the time. And I think one thing I think it's important to highlight to all of our providers that how we discuss patients really matters. Language definitely matters. You know, heart failure is, is an art in addition to a science. But, you know, a lot of times when discussing these patients, like this patient we mentioned earlier, sometimes charged words are used, like withdrawn or aggressive or, or ghetto even sometimes. And, and those, that's all coded sort of racist language. So I think part of our responsibility is to educate everyone with implicit bias training, which I think is what we all have been starting to do and starting to discuss and, and be more open about. And just to make sure that we're able to advocate for patients in the correct way. That's part of the reason why I, I do love heart failure. I love what I do is because I can be in that room and I can start to advocate for those patients. And I think, you know, the more and more we do that, I think it changes the way that our providers see our patients and, and how we advocate for them. And, you know, so that's sort of for the patient standpoint. But in addition, I think it's important to train physicians who are interested in healthcare disparities to perform research in, in this field and to make sure that they can advocate for patients in the right way. You know, I, I think mentorship is so incredibly important. The only reason I'm, I'm where I am right now is because I've had incredible mentors who believed in me from when I was a medical student to today. And, you know, I, I always say that you can't really be what you can't see. And so I think it's important to just continue to make sure to train diverse physicians and people who are interested in healthcare disparities to make sure that we keep the conversation going. So speaking of mentorship, Dr. Smith, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit before, but you're the only Black cardiologist in one of the only tertiary care centers in Southside Chicago, which is predominantly Black. And I know that you serve as a mentor to many, including myself. But I feel like that's a lot for you to carry. I know that personally, as early as college, I felt like I've been paying the minority tax. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's doing the necessary but unpaid and seldom unrecognized labor of mentorship, community engagement, etc. And also being very hyper visible and acting as a symbol of sorts, whether you want to or not, you know, and that is something that I think in this position is probably incredibly burdensome. I mean, burden being kind of a loaded word, but still, it's a heavy load to carry and you're just one person. So how do you think we can engage the rest of the cardiology community to also become engaged in community outreach and mentorship so that we can diversify the room? Well, first of all, I am one person, but that's why I'm thrilled you'll be joining our fellowship next year. So there'll be two of us. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> But no, but, but I mean, everything you say is, is so true. You know, I was just looking today and talking to Sterling about this. I'm looking at the ACGME statistics and 5% of all cardiology fellows are black, just 5%. And in a city like Chicago, where we have a predominantly black population, it's really important that, that we do better. We have to do better. You know, I did my advanced heart failure year at Northwestern and Clyde Yancey, their chief of cardiology, just absolutely incredible. One of my mentors. And when I sort of sat with him talking about my career, the one piece of advice he gave me that I really took to heart is he said, you know, as, as a black man in cardiology, early on in your career, it's very important to be visible. That simply always said, just be visible. And what he means by that is be in a place, you know, in an academic center, it's very easy because you're working with trainees, you're doing research, you're rounding, we're medical students and residents and everyone can, can see what you're doing. It's sort of a natural progression of what you do. But even if you're not in an academic center, uh, in a private practice, just make sure you're involved locally in your institution, national, people can see what you're doing. Because even that alone makes a huge difference. You know, for, for me, seeing someone like him and having mentors who look like me were just so, so incredibly important. So yes, it is a burden, but one, honestly, that I think is so incredibly important. And to be honest, thinking about everything that's happening during this past year, which we can talk about forever, from you know George Floyd to Ahmed Arbery to Breonna Taylor and everything that happened over this summer, you know, I think what it sort of meant to me is, is that as a black person, especially in medicine or any leadership position, you don't really have much of a choice but to be visible. I think there is a responsibility to just to make sure that a lot of the inequities that we've always sort of known existed, but have sort of come to light even more in the past year, we have to just do better. You know, so we have to be in a position where we can help to mentor the next generation of physicians, where we can speak out against racism when we see it, and when we can continue to, to push the conversation forward. 
So I, I'm proud to be at a place like University of Chicago where, where I really think they make diversity such a priority. And I think that they really are, are doing everything they can to make sure that our training workforce and our faculty workforce looks like the patients that we serve. And then, you know, even going down to sort of pipeline programs, Shirley and I have also talked about, so both of us went to Pritzker School of Medicine and have kind of been, you know, pseudo UFC lifers at this point. But I think it's great that a place like UFC really invests in their own. And I always felt from when I was even a medical student that UFC invested in me. And the only reason I'm where I'm right now, honestly, is because from the first day of medical school, I always felt so well supported. And I felt, always felt like I had mentors and people who were in my corner. So I, th- I think it's all those things, you know. So I think we have to kind of start from, from the bottom, make sure to mentor young people and just make sure that all the people we work with understand how important diversity is at every single level. And I kind of want to echo the all of the people you work with thing, because as you've already said, Dr. Smith, only 5% of cardiology fellows are black. And I know that when I was looking into cardiology, that was a number that was alarming to me, right? Like 12% women, 12% underrepresented minorities, right? But the fact of the matter is that because there's so few of us, like it's not really always possible or probable for us to have mentors who look like us, even though that would be wonderful, right? And so I know that personally, some of my like biggest advocates haven't been other Black women or Black people, right? Um, they've been people who haven't looked like me, but they are people who saw the value in me, and not just the value, of course, in the extra bit of color I will provide to their fellowship program image, right? Like, or their their medical school, like. Um, On the brochure, I'm sure. (laughs) On the brochure, exactly. (laughs) Um, Which, can I have a, tell a funny story really quickly? Am I allowed? Um, Please, please do. (laughs) My funny story is when I was applying to residency, I was a fourth year medical student. And I was at my interview day. They created a brochure that was talking about University of Chicago's like mission, et cetera, et cetera. And I flipped through the brochure and guess where I am? I'm in a like a major picture, front and center, rounding somewhere. I don't even remember <laughs> where this picture was taken. And I, I saw that and someone like some of my co, the other people who were interviewing were like, isn't that you? And I was like, if I don't match here, um, <laughs> <laughs> On the brochure, I'm going to be so angry. Anyway, <laughs> but but yes, um, kind of going back into it, it's really having an entire culture that actually sees the value in diversity, right? And not just, of course, racial and gender diversity, but also in diversity of interest. Because the people who are actually interested in engaging the community don't necessarily have to look like the community to do it. But if people aren't really interested in that, if they don't really have diversity of thought at the table, then they won't really advocate for that, right? And I think that's part of the mentorship and community outreach too. You know, Dr. Smith, you had said earlier, you you can't be what you can't see. And that actually has been echoing throughout many of the people in the diversity and inclusion discussions that we've been having. It's a very powerful mantra. So even at the inception of the show, we were always looking for people that we can showcase so that our listeners can see and really highlight, you know, you can be a cardiologist or I could be the provider that takes care of these patients. And so with the Narratives in Cardiology series, we actually wanted to go even beyond that and to actually address the issues that are going on and highlight the problems that we currently have within medicine and training and whether it's disparities with our patients or disparities with our actual colleagues. And so we really appreciate you bringing up these profound issues and proposing valuable steps forward that we can all take together to make our field a special place. So we're going to transition, though, to what we call part two of this episode, where we'd love to dive into your narratives. That's you, Charlene, and you, Dr. Smith. And we're going to be asking you a few questions that highlight your lives and what brought you into the field and things that make you tick and things that make you inspired. And so I'll start by asking you, Dr. Smith. For me, there was a before cardiology and an after cardiology. I was looking around as an intern for direction of what I should be doing. And I can remember the moment that I just knew. I just knew. And it was, I can remember it was the day, it was a July. I was rotating with Dr. Schulman, my clinical mentor, and we were in the unit. And I was just listening to him be excited to talk to the patients and interpret the hemodynamic data that we were reviewing for the patient. And I saw that connection that he had with the patient. And I just got so excited. And from then on, I just knew what I was doing. Do you have a moment before cardiology and after cardiology that you had decided to pursue this career? 
So it's interesting. You know, for me, it wasn't necessarily one moment, but I think sort of, you know, a series of events. I, I always love cardiovascular physiology. I love music. I, you know, I, I play the guitar and I always just sort of thought the cardiovascular physiology was like music and it was dynamic and it was so just so fascinating. I love critical care and I, I just loved, you know, rounding in the cardiac ICUs. So I, I love cardiovascular medicine. And then in addition to me, it was always just sort of seeing how, you know, so many patients of color are affected by cardiovascular disease. And I just really wanted to make a difference. So even though I, I felt like it was something I loved and was really interested in, I, I think I never quite thought that I could be a cardiologist, honestly. Cardiologists always seem so so smart and they always seem so put together. And, you know, I had a lot of imposter syndrome, as I think a lot of us, you know, a lot of black trainees do. And I did not think that I could do it, you know. So for me, what it really came down to was just having mentors, like what Charlene had mentioned. And, you know, for me, it was mentors who were black and mentors who were not black and people who just saw my worth and sat down with me and said, you can do this. I, I know you can do this, you know. And for me, it was a combination of me loving cardiac physiology and having people who believed in me and people who I trusted who believed in me, that made me feel like I can do it. So there wasn't really one day, but it was sort of like a few days kept passing and I kept talking to more and more people. And I, I really felt like it was something that I can do. So, so yeah, not necessarily a moment, but sort of more a process. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Smith. And, you know, I should hope for everyone that they find someone who sees their worth. I'm going to turn this question, Charlene, to you. And, you know, you're the the most proximal in your career, you know, and everyone here in this discussion. And so I'd love to hear, you know, when did Charlene Abobi, or, or maybe I should ask, when did Shirley Whirl, um, <laughs> you know, like when did, when did that person you know, develop the idea of, okay, I'm going to become a doctor and, and beyond that, I'm going to become a cardiologist? Right. So becoming a doctor was something I kind of decided or so I fell into fairly early. I had the classic, my mom is a doctor story. So I had someone already that I could look up to who was already in the healthcare field. Even from the, that point, I knew that the reason why I wanted to do medicine was more for the human connection. Despite appearances, I am kind of difficult to motivate. Like I, I had a job and I remember I was at a bookstore when I was younger. And I remember getting up every day just so that I could make a company money was really, really difficult for me. But getting up every day and knowing that I was desperately needed was not, right? And so medicine seemed kind of like the natural thing for me to do. But cardiology, kind of similarly to Dr. Smith, I really didn't see myself doing cardiology. And I, I kind of resisted it when I initially had interest at first, because honestly, I just didn't think I was suited for it. I was like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not what's called cerebral enough. I had all of these reasons. I'm very interested in narratives as it's become quite evident. And I, I thought that cardiology is this place for people who are into basic science and deep clinical research. There's not a place like that for me. And so similarly, it took people really telling me that, no, there is space for you. And actually, not only is there space for you, like you're actually needed here. And it actually did take seeing people who were in my position. And so I don't know whether Dr. Smith remembers this, but one of our mentors, our shared mentors from our medical school, likes to host dinners at her house. And she will occasionally invite attendings from people who she's mentored over the years. And she actually invited Dr. Smith once. And Dr. Smith, you were the first Black cardiologist I had ever met. I think <laughs> you might have been the first wow. one I'd even heard of. Dr. Right? And, yeah, it was at Dr. Bell's yeah. house. And you I think you'd broken your leg or something. You did something. <laughs> so you're like hobbling on there on crutches. <laughs> and you, you were not just like, you're uh, also like an advanced heart failure physician, you know, and I was, I think it was like the first time where I was like, oh, okay, like, here's someone who kind of understands my experience, right? So it was the first time it kind of tickled my mind that maybe this was something I could do. And then the afterwards, when I became a resident, there were a few patients who were actually quite similar to the patient we talked about who had these desperately difficult social situations, like just impossible social situations. They had children to take care of, right? They had jobs that they couldn't like they would lose if they kept going to appointments, et cetera. And they kept presenting to the cardiac intensive care unit, getting tanked up, right? <laughs> Diarrhea aggressively. They would go home. They, we wouldn't see them for two to three months. And then they'd be right back in the unit. And there was one person in particular where I remember sitting down and talking to her, like actually taking some time to talk to her. And she basically told me about her impossible situation. She's like, look, like, what am I supposed to do? Right? Like, you guys are asking me to come in, like, once a month, you want me to take all of these medications, right? My insurance only pays for this much. I have to feed my grandkids. 
I have to help my kids. You know, she had all of these other responsibilities that were just simply so much more salient to her, at least in her clinical condition at the time. And I felt in some ways that not any fault of, of the physicians I was working with at the time who were excellent, right? But I felt in some ways as though that was a part of her story that was being neglected when we were really discussing her, right? And discussing things like advanced options for her. And I remember feeling like, man, like, I wish I could be the one to help her, right? Or I could, I could help, right? Or I could advocate for her. And so following that was kind of the, I guess, a, a love for cardiac physiology. I mean, I just like how the heart works. It makes sense. It's like everything else. It's a narrative. I love narratives. I can follow narratives. I'm like, okay, pressure goes down here or goes in this direction. All about it, right? And so, like, yeah, it was a combination of different hits along the way that kind of led me there. But I'll wrap this up because I know I'm taking a while to give you this answer. I actually had a moment where about a year or so before I applied, right? Because I, I was still tossing it around. And I was with one of my mentors, and he was the attending on the cardiology service. And I said something that was just self-disparaging. I said something like, oh, like, I'm not smart enough for, like, for cards. And he stopped rounds <laughs> and said, Shirlene, why would you say that? You are plenty smart enough for this. Like, I've been working you for two weeks. Why would you say that about yourself? And of course, now I'm flustered right? <laughs> um, because I'm like, well, but and he's like, no, that's not true. You are definitely smart enough for cards. You should do cardiology. Right. I mean, he wrote one of my letters. He's really been one of my strongest advocates ever since. And I think about that all a lot now about how I've noticed that now that I'm starting to fall into the role of being a mentor to others, how often people who look like me have that narrative in their heads, you know, that they don't belong, right? And how even me, even though I'm just starting this, I'm like just starting this whole cardiology thing, like, and me being there is already motivating other people to realize that, oh, like, actually, like, I can do this too. Like, here's this girl who, who draws and writes, right? And she's a cardiologist or going to be a cardiologist. And so, like, I too can do that. And so that was my very long answer to um, how I ended up getting into cards. Yeah. No, but what a, a very beautiful answer, Shirlene. And, you know, I just have to say that I completely understand how, you know, from the outside looking in, there's this perception that cardiology is this like ultra research heavy, basic science, clinical research, big trial, data driven type of space. Mm -hmm. uh, is there room for somebody who's interested in narratives, you know, or for maybe somebody like me and Dan is, is there room for somebody who's interested in digital education, right? Right. But I, I want to take us back to how you define diversity, which is very much the way we've defined it for the narratives discussions is this diversity of background in terms of race and ethnicity, sex and gender, socioeconomic status, IMG status, but it's also diversity in thought, in talent, in experience, you know? And so what you bring to the table in your ability to express yourself in narrative form, whether it's in comics or books or, you know, this podcast, it's very moving and I think very meaningful for people. And it elevates the discourse around conversations that we need to have. So, you know, I think, yeah, maybe there wasn't room for it before, but you made room for it. And I'm thankful that you did. I have to say, you're making us smile so much because hearing your story, I have to echo the exact sentiments that Ahmed said. You know, when you joined this field, you brought you to the field. And that is exactly what makes it even better and more exciting. And I, I had similar imposter syndrome feelings because uh, to me, a cardiologist, the way, you know, and Amma can relate to this, we went to the same residency program. To me, a cardiologist was somebody who had like this like photographic library of every trial that happened since the 19, sorry, since the 1880s and like <laughs> of the aspirin saga. And, and uh, at the same time was able to quote you literature on the Jackson and, you know, the, and, and everything beyond. And so that wasn't exactly what turned me on about cardiology. And, and I, I felt it's very similar to what you said. Like I could put a narrative together. I can pretend I'm a blood cell whisking around the pulmonic valve, you know, and that for me speaks to me. And so I could totally relate. And, and, and once I realized that you can do that in cardiology too, you could pretend you're in a magic school bus being dumped into the right ventricle and everything will be good and the patients will benefit from that. So definitely could relate to that. You know, throwing this back to you, Shirlene, has there been a time where you found yourself up against a challenge that you thought was insurmountable, not just because your perception of it was, but you actually had a challenge and then you pushed yourself and figured out a way around it or a way through it? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, the easiest one for me is like the classic like step scores debacle. Like I was one of those people who I've always had a lot of kind of testing anxiety, right? Testing anxiety is especially interesting, I think, when you are a Black person in, in academia, right? Because there is like this implicit suggestion that goes around that, you know, Black students don't score quite as highly as everybody else and therefore are less deserving of their spots, right? There's always this like narrative to of, excuse me using that word all the time. And so I, I walked into my, my test with that kind of pressure and I've done really well on my practice exams. I bomb stepped. I did so badly. Right? I called one of my mentors afterwards and I was just like, this is game over for me. Right. And here are all my like barely formed dreams are falling apart, et cetera, et cetera. And I think my response to that afterwards was really to lean into the reasons why I was going into medicine in the first place. Right. And those reasons are really like around people. You know, I have always joked that I am a creature of love. I love people, even if I don't like them. I want better for people. And that's why so much of the work that I do and what I talk about on Shirley World is advocacy related, right? And so that is what I put into my third year, right? And into my fourth year and beyond. And I think using my strengths, leaning onto the things that I was good at and not trying to be someone who I wasn't, right? Not trying to form myself into what I thought was the perfect medical student or the perfect cardiology applicant and just really like leaning into, okay, but who am I? And like, how do I try to reach my highest potential? Like, what am I good at? Right? Reaching into that was what really helped me kind of get through that phase and to really make myself look appealing otherwise when I was eventually applying. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's, it was an experience. And it's what I actually do like to talk about a lot, because I think we don't talk about that enough, those feelings enough. And I, I find that people can relate. Charlene, I love what you say about this process of going from, you know, maybe thinking about your weaknesses to leaning into your strengths and, you know, self-realization, right? You know, like you essentially took us through this arc of like, you know, having disparaging comments about yourself. Maybe along the way you have people that can help you identify your self-worth, but to come to a point of being able to appreciate your own strengths, it really comes across in how you carry yourself, you know, even in this discussion. And it's remarkable. And I think that's a gift that I think you can give to a lot of people. You know, turning the conversation a little bit, Dr. Smith, you know, we talked a little bit about implicit biases earlier, but as a Black man in medicine, have you felt any resistance along your path from implicit or even explicit bias, maybe even from well-meaning people? First of all, I'm loving this conversation. That was this is great. And, you know, I kind of have to echo a lot of the things that Charlene was saying. So for my personal story, what, what I always tell people who sort of ask me about this is I have been incredibly lucky. I've been incredibly lucky where I've trained and how people have always advocated for me. So what I always say that, you know, from the first day I started medical school, one of both Charlene and I's mutual mentors, Dr. Avela, took me under her wing, basically, you know, made me feel like I could do anything. And that was really, really important to me, you know? And so the reason why I wanted to stay at UFC and the reason why I've continued to stay at UFC and invest in UFC is because UFC has always made me feel like I could do anything. That all the times I, I, I doubted myself, I had multiple mentors in my corner, multiple advocates in my corner. When I, you know, I graduated from cardiology fellowship and, you know, we all sort of give a little speech to, you know, our, all of our attendings. I said, I'm a product of all of you, you know, and I still sort of feel like I have a lot of people who advocate for me and have been my cheerleader. So that's been my personal experience. But, but yes, you know, as a black man in medicine and black man in cardiology, you know, there are definitely examples of, of some implicit bias from patients. I mean, and I can't tell you how many times I've walked into patients' rooms and patients will ask them to either take out the garbage or ask me to move their food tray or, you know, um, things like that, thinking I'm, I'm not a physician. I, I honestly think every Black person and every person of color who is in medicine probably has experiences like that. And so I think that doesn't go away, you know, but I've sort of learned about myself is that all the imposter syndrome that I have had and have had for years, the only thing that makes it better, you know, is having mentors who believe in you, but also experience, you know, I, I'm four years out of training and I have so much more to learn, but I can say that I now can walk into a patient's room and I can confidently have a discussion about advanced options or sort of confidently have a discussion about acute support and ECMO and, you know, where things are going. Whereas years ago, I probably couldn't do that, you know, and I think it just really takes, takes a lot of time, you know. 
I sort of always think about being a black person and a black person in medicine. I think about W.E.B. Du Bois always talked about this thing called double consciousness, where, you know, black people sort of have two views where you see the world through your own eyes, but you also see the world through how the world sees you. So you're constantly always double and triple sort of thinking and checking everything you do because as a medical student, if I would get something wrong or if I felt like I, I wasn't as on top of things as I should have been, you know, it's not only I feel bad for myself, but I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm you know, people sort of expect that I, maybe I'm not going to be as good as them. And so, you know, the extra burden you place on yourself, it can be really, really difficult. And, and I think many, many of us experience that. And, and Charlene, you know, I experienced the same thing you experienced too with, with test taking during medical school. The first two years of medical school were incredibly difficult for me. And I second guessed myself every single day. I think for, you know, for me, medical school just sort of taught me resilience. But I think a lot of us do have to be resilient in medicine. And it wasn't until I got to my third year and I started meeting patients and started getting in the hospital that it felt like a good fit for me. I consider myself to be somewhat of a, a right brain person. I'm not very analytical. I'm not a great test taker. I sort of think about the world a little bit more holistically and creatively. And it wasn't until I, I realized that, you know, all of these, these sort of emotions that I was feeling, um, empathy and compassion it, it could focus on my patients. So it was really just getting in the hospital third year, meeting patients, Understand I could walk into a room, connect with someone, understand what they were going through. And that's what being a doctor is all about. You know, it's part of it is understanding the, you know, the medical knowledge and understanding your craft, but there's so much soft skills and empathy and compassion that I think are so needed in medicine. So in terms of the initial question about implicit bias, you know, I can say that I have experienced it in little ways, but I've been just so fortunate to be at a place that has really always supported me and advocated for me. And I want to make sure that University of Chicago stays that way. And so, you know, that's why I love continuing to work here and to, you know, to continue to train really impressive residents and, and fellows. Just make sure that next generations of, of physicians will hopefully not have to go through what a lot of us went through. Dr. Smith, would you advise people to look for places that are accommodating and also welcoming, like uh, University of Chicago? Or would you also advise people to go trailblaze and find places where they can kind of teach the places where they go? What do you think? Such a good question, honestly. And, you know, I, um, one of the, the core faculty of our residency program, and I work a lot with uh, diversity inclusion and trying to recruit and interview a lot of our medical school applicants. And it's a, it's a tough question because, you know, being a medical student and being a resident is hard enough as it is. You know, you're up all night, you're with people you don't really know. It's really important you're in a place where you feel comfortable. And Charlene's class and in our internal medicine residency program was was so incredible because there's so much diversity. I mean, Charlene, you, you tell me what the number is, but I think there were like eight black residents in your class. Uh, yeah, they're like there were like nine of us. We're, and, and I've literally we been we call ourselves an HBCU. It's amazing, <laughs> you know. And, and what I would say is that you need this, you need that critical mass in order to make sure that you recruit future trainees who want to be in an environment like that. So it was so incredible to, to have that class because I really do think that injected a lot of excitement and sort of energy into our program. And it really did signal to the rest of the country that, you know, our UFC really is a place that is welcoming to people of color and is a place where people of color can thrive. So I, I always recommend going somewhere where I think it is a welcoming environment. I mean, being a resident, being a trainee is hard enough as it is, honestly. Of course, you know, sometimes you have to be the first one. And I think there are many people who, who have done that and have been the first one and who have done incredibly well. But, you know, I, I think it's more difficult to do that way. And Dr. Smith, how does a program like put up their flag to tell people that they are a place that would be inclusive? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it's through having people like Charlene who are active on social media, you know, it's, it's really, it's really true. I think that's, a, that's a huge flag. And by, by word of mouth, I mean, if you sort of Google the most diverse medical schools, Pritzker School of Medicine comes up. So I, I think a lot of it is by, by word of mouth. And a lot of it is when, you know, you, when you interview additional programs to ask those questions. I'm so lucky. I, I did a, a lot of interviews for our residency program this year. And so many of the medical students were, were really excited when they got to talk to me. And they're like, I've, you know, kind of like what Charlene says, hey, I've never seen a black cardiologist. Or I'm so excited that they set me up with a black cardiologist. And, and I could sort of speak to a lot of the, these issues. So I do think there are a number of ways to do it. But I think when interviewing a program, it's important to ask those questions specifically. But I think programs should be proud of this. And I think sort of publicize it however they can. I also want to add that it's not just the people of color that a program has to recruit. You have to recruit a whole class that is invested in the mission. And so my class, I can toot my classes horn all day long, right? So we have, I believe, 
eight Black residents, one Latina in our class. But the rest of the class who aren't URMs are still people who came to University of Chicago with the understanding that they were going to be taking care of a poor Southside population and saw that as a boon rather than as a disadvantage, right? And that's the thing is like, you have to recruit a class that is committed to taking care um, of a population, right? And committed to actually like confronting issues of diversity in medicine and confronting their own internalized bias, et cetera, right? If you make the environment unsafe and you recruit underrepresented minorities into that environment, they're not going to thrive there. And and we talk amongst ourselves. There's so few of us, so we know which of those places are, right? So I think a program that wants to make themselves more attractive to underrepresented minorities kind of has to do two things. First of all, it has to look within itself and actually ask whether they're willing to make the changes and willing to take back feedback to make themselves more welcoming and more safe for URMs. And then the other thing I think is important is to also, and this is going to be a little controversial, right? Like is to also consider not necessarily just picking from the same pot of like the 50 or 60 Black students who've gone to like top medical schools and gotten great scores and have like studded CVs, right? Like you have to also look and look at the applicants holistically, right? Like look at distance traveled, right? And look at, look at missions, et cetera, et cetera. Like actually read their applications. Cause I, I, I do think as every time I've interviewed, right, I run into the same people over and over again because we're all kind of coming from the same pot. So I do think that programs that are really invested in this mission really have to like actually take a step back and look at what they're willing to change and adjust about themselves to actually realize it. So Dr. Smith, what do you enjoy doing outside of work when you're not in the cath lab and not seeing patients in the unit? How do you find that work-life balance? I have a lot of outside interests, honestly. And and I, I think that's enables me to completely dive into work when I when I'm there. But I do a lot of different things. I mean, it's funny to tell that story, Charlene, about when I was at Dr. Vela's house with my broken foot because I broke my foot because I, I'm a soccer player, <laughs> or I was at least. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I play soccer, I, I play a, a bunch of sports, I'm really into music too. So I play the guitar, I pretend like I sing sometimes too. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if you do, you do that either, Charlene, but one of my outside hobbies. And a, a lot of things I, I, I write also. So I think this whole narrative medicine is fascinating because something I've, I've I've always done is, especially in the world of heart failure, I mean, there are so many incredible stories that, you know, I, I never want to forget. So I, I do write a lot of the stories of, of my patients down. So that's something I do in my free time as well. So I think for me, it's work-life balance is extremely, extremely important for mental health reasons. I think as providers and in the world of heart failure, sometimes it's possible to burn out because you have to invest so much of yourself into your patients. So I like to have a little bit of separation just so I can, you know, I can sort of clear my head and put everything into perspective before diving back into work again. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I, it's important for me to have a real, real balance. Just, I mean, um, just to make sure that we can do this long term. Like, you know, it's sort of funny. Once you start as an attending, you're like, wow, I have to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I love this, but wow, this is like the next 30, you know, 30 plus years of my life. So, you know, I think it's always important to pace yourself. That's a, a wonderful discussion. And we, we started off saying, Charlene, we've been planning this for such a long time. But, you know, I, I, me and Dan have this active chat going on the sideline about how incredible this has been. So very much worth the wait. As we close, I'd like to recognize the gravity of the discussions that we've been having, right, about the very real inequities that we face in healthcare for our patients and in the professional opportunities for our colleagues. As sobering as these issues are, I have to say, I feel even more hopeful. Hopeful because of the signs of meaningful change are all around us. Signs like Dr. Smith, your advocacy and promotion of junior colleagues like Charlene, and signs like Charlene's own incredible work with activism and this powerful use of narratives in mentoring junior colleagues. And signs like the recent inauguration of our very first Black and Asian Indian woman vice president. Speaking of the inauguration... And of hope, I have to say I had chills during Amanda Gorman's recital of her poem, The Hill We Climb. And the following brought so much optimism in my mind for our future. And I'll quote it, but you know, I definitely won't do it justice. I think for the audience, if you're interested, please watch the video, you know, along with Amanda Gorman's body language and her cadence and the passion uh, with which she says these words. And she says, we are striving to forge a union with purpose to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first 
put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. You know, she may have been talking about the, the mission for this very narrative series. So with that, I'd like to thank you both, Dr. Smith and Charlene, for helping us in recognizing these problems, thinking about the solutions, and sharing in our hope. Thank you so much, Amit. I've been looking forward to doing this talk with you since the moment you brought it up months ago. And on the topic of hope, let's kind of disclose this discussion as Amanda Gorman closed her poem. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Oh my gosh, uh, that was absolutely beautiful. And this was incredibly important and powerful discussion. I've gone from like laughs to crazy goosebumps to just feeling the raw emotion that Dr. Smith and Shirlene have really brought to this discussion. And I, I just feel very humbled that we'll be able to get this out to the audience so that they can hear these perspectives and important narratives in cardiology. So Dr. Smith, Shirlene, Thank you, thank you, thank you for elevating the CardioNerds platform in this way with this incredible discussion. Thank you so much for including me. This has been incredible. And honestly, all of you give me hope for the future. You know, with this digital platform, I think there's so much that you can do. And I think you guys are thinking creatively about how to move cardiology forward. So I'm really excited to see what the future holds for all of you. And thanks again for allowing me to participate in this conversation. And now, a reading by Dr. Andy Shahu of a blog he wrote for DHA titled, Let's Ban the Phrase Social Issues, Social Justice, and Advanced Heart Failure Therapies, with a backdrop of an original composition by Dr. Brian Smith. Everyone on our unit seems to know Tina. Tina is a single 50-year-old black woman, has two kids, and does not have stable housing, currently living with an abusive man in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Baltimore. She has non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and has been admitted numerous times to the inpatient cardiology service. Each time she is admitted for acute decompensated heart failure, diuresed aggressively to uvolemia and discharged. She has, quote, not tolerated previous attempts to start guideline-directed medical therapy, so the only heart failure medication she takes at home is an oral diuretic. Behavioral issues are flagged all over her chart. She has left against medical advice, has demonstrated, quote, poor insight into her medical condition, and has refused medications and treatments. This admission is no different. When I first meet her, Tina is teetering on cardiogenic shock, 20 pounds above her dry weight, dry heaving and confused, her extremities cool. She quickly turns around with inotropic support and diuretics and is now doing a lot better. I've managed to convince the team to retrial GDMT and we have her on a low-dose ACE inhibitor and spironolactone. The nurses on our floor have also taken a liking to her and have banded together to help care for her on her own terms. Tina is doing all of the things we are asking of her. But what will her future look like? Tina has entered that unfortunate spiral in which all patients with advanced heart failure find themselves, recurrent and increasingly frequent hospitalizations, progressive decline, and seemingly no way out. One day on rounds, we discuss her options. A member of our team mentions offhand that she is, obviously, not a candidate for advanced therapies due to her social issues and her lack of adherence with prescribed therapies. Every time I hear the words social issues in the hospital, I shudder and think about how loaded the phrase is. It's a catch-all euphemism that physicians use to describe patients who face obstacles extending beyond their medical environment and into their social or contextual environment. These patients, like Tina, share certain characteristics. They are female, black or brown, poor, and live in socioeconomically deprived neighborhoods. Moreover, these patients with, quote, social issues do not qualify for advanced heart failure therapies, such as left ventricular assist devices and heart transplants. Indeed, this trend is supported by the medical literature. A recent study published in Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes found that women, black patients, Latinx patients, Medicare and Medicaid patients, and those living in lower-income areas were less likely to receive LVADs than their privileged white male-insured counterparts living in higher-income areas. Likewise, another recent study published in Circulation found that a patient's race influenced decision-making around selection for heart transplant. Disparities also extend to outcomes related to these advanced therapies, as highlighted by a circulation heart failure study that found socioeconomic and racial disparities in outcomes after heart transplant. 
In the face of such evidence, we must challenge the status quo on behalf of our patients with social issues. We must question the presumption that they are simply ineligible for advanced heart failure therapies. We must investigate the role that personal, social, and contextual factors have played in bringing them to the precipice of death from end-stage heart failure. We must ask ourselves how their lifelong experiences with racism and discrimination at the hands of healthcare providers affects their trust in us. We must ask ourselves which societal forces of socioeconomic oppression and structural racism make it difficult for them to obtain the care they need to live a better life. And finally, we must look inward and acknowledge the ways in which we as healthcare providers perpetuate racism and discrimination against them through our own words, discussions, and actions. Most importantly, we must figure out how to right this injustice so that we do not just take it for granted that patients like Tina cannot access LVADs and heart transplants. We need to determine what we must do to help these patients receive the same advanced interventions that their privileged contemporaries are offered. Everyone should have equal access to these therapies. Our work as cardiologists, physicians, and good citizens of our society is not done until the words social issues are banned from our lexicon and are no longer used to disqualify patients from receiving life-saving therapies. Thank <laughs> you.